Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the WGA strike as well as the SAG-AFTRA strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Also, please check out SAGAFTRA.org for additional resources. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast. I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. My first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently making others, including a horror comedy called Best Friends Forever. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome scenic artist Sean Casey on the show to talk about what a scenic artist does, how he got into the art department, and the struggles he faces in his work. After that, we play another round of The Game. Uh, But first, Ulrich, how are you? I'm doing well. I had a funny thing happen this morning. I was just, you know, eating breakfast with my daughter and she always likes to point out my t-shirts and ask questions like what's on my shirt. And so she pointed out my shirt for the alternate this, alternate this morning and she was like, what is that? What What's that? What that? What that? And I was like, oh, that's the portal to another dimension. That's a movie that dad made called The Alternate. And she's like, see it, watch it, watch it. <laughs> I was like, no, no, we can't watch it yet. It's, you know, when you're older. She's like, Princess Peach in it. And I was like, no, <laughs> I didn't put Princess Peach in my movie. Um, but that's a pretty cool version of it. That would be fun. <laughs> but it was just cool, like the first time, like kind of explaining to her that that's what I make movies, you know? And I mean, and she's watched me at like QC videos and even edit videos and stuff before. So she like is aware that there's like videos are constantly on dad's screen, but I don't think she understands anything about like that. It's my job or anything, of course, but uh, yeah, it was kind of a fun little (laughs) silly daddy daughter conversation to have this morning. Like, yes, this is a movie I've made. You know, you will not be watching it, but you will be soon. And sadly, there is no Princess Peach in my movie. My, my and that's the next one for the sequel. Exactly. <laughs> Sean has a, you know, my partner, husband, person thing. Sean has a Blu-ray wall. And Colin's past favorite pastime, probably around the age that BB is right now, was for Sean to pick him up and then for him to be like, uh, Warner Brothers, <laughs> or like, like he'd see like the WB, he'd be like Warner Brothers, and then he'd see like Columbia, he'd be like Columbia, like he would wow. like look at the spines, That's cool. but he doesn't know what it means, right? But it's like this thing of like he was really into logos for yeah. a period of time, and it's like the, the iconography of logos. And he, we, I remember one day we just spent a lot of time watching different versions of the MGM Lion. Like just a montage of a lion roaring. Wow. <laughs> but you, it's moments like that where you're like, 
yeah, I think they like movies as much as I do, right? Yeah. I think that they, it, the seed could be in there. The seed could be planted. Exactly. That's fun. A- anything going on with you? Exciting? Different? Interesting? The only exciting thing is that I told people, I'm picketing at Disney tomorrow, and I have been promoting it, trying to get more people to come with me. And my friend, Jacob Manalan, who is just a lovely human, Venmoed me a coffee and donuts budget for for like the actors and the writers striking and so right now i'm looking at different permutations of donut and coffee options i should be ordering picketers and i'm overthinking it of course i'm like do i get the deluxe i get less but they feel they feel like more luxurious as a gift more luxurious for sure less you think so better oh yeah for donuts like unless there's like way too many people for the donuts that you're getting, I I think I don't know because because most people aren't not everyone's gonna eat a donut right like that's like the bottom line right you know like yeah and there's probably especially if it's actors there's probably less people they're not are, gonna eat any of them the actors won't donuts. eat any of them yeah, yeah. so like they'd it must be better if you got like a really cool for the writers. hip donut yeah. spot that like an actor would have half of one or be like oh I have to try yes. this you know I'll share it with like six other actors I'm, I'm really ragging on actors right, right now <laughs> but, but that's my thinking too I'm like have you ever seen an actor pull a donut from the donut cart like never <laughs> I mean maybe there'll be knives and forks where they could split them but I think you're right that's a really good point because I didn't want to get bottom of the barrel the, the strike captain recommended Randy's donuts which is like kind of a fairly well-known, mm, nice, fancy donut shop, go. right? Randy sounds not fancy, great. but like perfect, you know. So we'll do that. So that's what I'm doing is just you know like changing my DoorDash total to various different permutations of types of donuts to get it right under budget and delicious for them. I, I'm gonna put Orrin Kaplan and and on blast from uh, just shoot it right now because I've been to a couple of their live events and one of the first ones I went to they had Domino's pizza. And I was like, mm, I don't know. And Orin's like, yeah, Domino's. Everyone loves Domino's. It's all about Domino's. And Matt's is like, Matt's like, I don't, I don't, no. I, I didn't want the Domino's. And I go to another event like a couple of years later, and then there's not Domino's. It's like a, unknown, like local neighborhood pizza. That's what you want. And I was like, you want yes, pizza. much yes. better upgrade. And I think even talked to Orin about this, and he's like, everyone loves Domino's. Like I, I push for Domino's. No. Matt wouldn't allow it. And I was like, yeah, it's a good choice. Domino's. It is makes terrible. you sick. It's delicious going down, but it's it makes you sick. It's not good. It's good. Well, it's pizza. like why you can't serve Domino's or any pizza for like a lunch on a film set because it, it you just oh, don't yeah. get energy from it like it can be a second oh. meal or whatever like that's fine but yeah I would say no one give second meal dominoes because that just feels like you're so lazy like let's get something like local you can find something local open late you know yeah anyway it's just pizza rant over <laughs> <laughs> well people should not do cheap pizza but they all but they should support us on patreon so head on over to patreon.com slash mmih podcast to keep the show going 199 a month gets you access to the entire back catalog of episodes that are not available on apple podcasts we also have some other cool incentives like pins and stickers but check them all out on that website also, make sure to support our sponsor, Jambox.io, which is a royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, global brands like DJI. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. But without any more delay, here's our chat with Sean Casey. 
We are here with, I don't know what your official title is, but I would say scenic artist, artist, on-set painter, Sean Casey. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, all of, all of the above. So thank you. So, yeah, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about like what a scenic artist does and like what is it an official title like and what your role is on a set when you when you're hired to do this job? Yeah. So scenic artist. Yes, it is a definite title. A lot of times the head scenic artist on a movie or TV show is called the key scenic. And so we work within the paint department, which is part of really the construction department. So the production designer deals with the construction coordinator. They build the sets, get them all ready to go. And then we rush in and we paint the sets, make them look like however it is that they want them to look like. It's can, you know, making things look old, make, you know, doing fake bricks, doing fake concrete, faux finishing, putting decals on cars, putting up wallpaper. So that's, that's a lot of the pre-production before production gets there. And then as an on-set scenic, sometimes that's needed. So maybe if they're swapping out a wall or they're doing a gag that needs a, a wall to be repainted or, or something like that. So there may, at times, you work as an on-set. So that's an on-set scenic. And then, uh, you know, in the department, there are painters in the scenic department. But pretty much every painter I've ever worked with does scenic work. So I think a lot of them are, are more than just painters, even though they're listed like that on the crew list. This is already so interesting. I, I, I'm i a micro-budget feature filmmaker, right? Sure. So it's like, usually I get a production designer and they are also, maybe their boyfriend is the art director. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, who's like an extra hand and we gave him that credit. And then that's it. It's like the whole department. What would you, I assume you do not work on a lot of micro-budget projects, but if you could translate what you do in a larger context of like studio features for like a smaller department, would you... Would you ever be doing things other than painting or is that your like very specific specialty that you do when it's a larger project? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, as a, I mean, I, I do know how to do carpentry. I've done a lot of building, a lot of that kind of stuff. And I, I do have a production designer somewhat sensibility because I have a good history of art and architecture and design and, you know, that kind of look thing. But well, you, it's like you wouldn't be coming on to a lower budget project, most likely, because they are smaller departments. Yeah. But, I, you know, I also am brought on to work on commercials as well. So mm. a lot of times those are, you know, technically, I guess you could say smaller budget. So we come in and do that. But I think, yeah, I mean, it is it is generally for larger crews, that kind of thing. But I, I think part of my reason was re- to reaching out was to let people know that actually you can, you know, build sets and you can make them look pretty cool for pretty cheap. Yeah, it is possible. And, you know, just to share whatever ways or ideas of, you know, a a low budget person can do it. I I think what I would recommend for low budget people, you know, obviously they get the production designer and so forth. But a good person, the the head of the construction department of a set is the construction coordinator. So if you can find somebody that's actually good at remodeling or good at carpentry and you say, hey, you get to be a construction coordinator, you know, now maybe they're the ones building them as well and painting them as well. But that's really the hierarchy that it starts off with. So if you're a person that's not really comfortable building sets, you know, just finding that person to uh, to take care of that, I think is, is something people consider. I think the hunch that I have is that a lot of small and micro budget features don't contemplate building sets because they think they'll probably look theatrical or, oh, it's expen- or expensive. Yeah, <laughs> or expensive. But, you know, I, I listen to a lot of gear channels and, you know, independent filmmakers and they talk about their gear and so forth. And 
I think one thing that an independent filmmaker would be good to have if they've got the space for it is a collection of six or eight four by eight flats. Because with just a few flats, you can set them up and you can, I mean, like here in Portland, we have a couple of stores that recycle building material. So you can buy doors, trim, fixtures for super cheap. And so if you set up those four by eight flats and you stand them up with some jacks and a few sandbags and, you know, cut out a few holes, throw some windows in, throw a door in, you can make a pretty convincing set. And with those four by eight flats, you can make multiple sets. You can do all your shooting in one set. And, you know, once you're done with it, strike it, repaint it, get new trim. And all of a sudden you've got a whole nother room and you can do that in, you know, assuming you're building a set, you have more control since you're not on location, you have control of the lighting and so forth. Again, I mean, it, it probably sounds easier than it is, but just that I've seen it done so many times. I've seen so much. I've seen two wall sets are great. I've seen one wall sets and they're in movies and it can be done. So I really want to get to like kind of the history of like how you got to where you are in the art department. But I got I to gotta ask the question. So I, I made a movie that we had sets built and I've been on plenty of sets in my life. The thing that always kills me is when a beautiful set is made and then it has to be destroyed to be thrown away. So I don't know if you have any like experience of like ways you've saved sets or how set, like how you can avoid that from happening. But it just seems like a lot of the time it's, it's inevitable. Like you basically have, cause like who's going to store it, but like, can you just speak to that a little bit in that whole process? Yeah. I mean, that is the case. I mean, I, it's kind of interesting here in town and I've worked on a couple of haunted house projects, you know, when they have the outdoor haunted house things going on. And uh, one of the guys that I know, he has purposely over the years recycled all these old sets and he's incorporated them into his haunted house. So, you know, I go to his haunted house and I see all these sets and like, oh yeah, I remember building that and said that. So, I mean, that's one set way of re recycling. I think it comes back, you know, if you can take a four by eight and, and have that as your base and then you, you know, you put your stuff on it and just keep those four by eights. I mean, that's really the starting blocks for it. But yeah, I mean, there is those times where, you know, things get trashed. I remember doing this one set for, I think it was Leverage. And I did this great archway and, you know, I had like, you know, faux, you know, drop shadow fake lettering and it looked wonderful. The rocks were great and they they just didn't have the budget to shoot. So it just all got, all got trashed. So yeah, I mean, that, it happens. I mean, I think it's just trying to repurpose stuff. I mean, if you have the storage for it, I mean, a lot of people don't, but, but yeah, yeah, it is painful sometimes to see something that's, uh, that looks nice and then it goes bye-bye. So this is, it's like really romantic the way you talk about all of this. <laughs> like, like I've never shot on a set. Like Arika shot on many sets. I always will like borrow someone's apartment and then we hang things on the wall or we put temporary wallpaper on. But the idea, it's like you're you're encouraging endless possibilities where a lot of filmmakers see limitations, which is really beautiful. Well, yeah, I think it's, you know, that's easy to do because I think uh, when you're an independent filmmaker, you're, you're a lot of times you're run and gun and you're used to going to places that fit the bill, you know, because it's there, it's set up and so forth. And I totally get that. I mean, there, and sometimes you need to go to a set. I think sometimes I, I, I just wouldn't discount the building of sets. Like I said, it is a hassle, but I mean, most sets, as Ulrich probably knows, they're they're built out of one by threes with sheets of Luan. So, you know, you can, you know, material wise, you could probably build four by eights, you know, materials and all that that could, you know, encompass a 12 by 16 foot room for, I mean, materials, maybe 500 bucks. I mean, 
I know we're, yeah, I don't, you know, again, I'm kind of, you know, depending on how much you can source the material and so forth. And, and like I said, here in town, we have these uh, building recycling, building material places. And literally they've got, they've got fixtures from every period you can think of. They've got doors, they've got windows. And if you had like, let's say you had some four by eight flats, maybe you had six of them that are four by eight. And then maybe you had a couple of them that had a door cut out. So they're four by eight, but you have a 36 inch wide opening with a six foot, six inch tall opening. And then you can input, insert any door you want into that. And then, or or a window, maybe you have a four by eight flat that you always have a pre-cut out window. And then you just scab in a window and so forth. And again, it's just making sure you use like a, don't use Phillips heads, use a star star bits or uh, square bits because you're probably going to be, re, you know, recycling some of these materials and using holding screws in and out and so forth. But but yeah, just I mean, when you have a set, it gives you that degree of control. You can work, you know, 24 hours. You can you can control the lighting. You can control, you know, whatever. So sometimes it may be more cost effective to do that rather than going out on the set and having to bring catering out there and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, this is not a question, just an acknowledgement that it is taking us five months to figure out curtains for our apartment and but but you are like like you're just describing it's like heaven okay Uh, Auric I know you want to ask about origin story so yeah yeah I want to hear about like you know your start in the industry like you know how you got started started in the art department and like kind of all the different roles that you've played and like kind of how you ended up at at this as one of your main roles that you do now Yeah. So my background is in visual art. I've been a visual artist all my life, painting, drawing, illustrating, that kind of thing. So I've done that both as for my own stuff. And then I've also worked as a commercial artist. So painting signs and whatever. And and then it was about 10 or 11 years ago, I got brought on to work on a TV show that was uh, filming here in Portland. And so this lady brought me on. She's a master scenic artist. Her name's Ellen Lipinski. And she was kind enough to uh, bring me on. And that was my first time I'd have ever actually even been on a set. I never, I had no idea what a grip was or <laughs> softbox or, uh, you know, gaffer or anything, that kind of stuff. So started working there, just learning tricks of the trade and worked on a one TV show. And then I ended up hopping onto another TV show and then a couple of small budget movies here in town. And then I've done work for the Portland Opera commercials, some theatrical. So yeah, yeah. Have, have brush, will travel. So and, and, and this has all been as a scenic artist or have you done other, you know, kind of similar roles in art as well? Well, I mean, I guess being working as a commercial artist, I, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, people come to me and they say, we want this painted and I paint it. And that's (laughs) kind of what I've done. I think in terms of the movie realm and the TV realm, that was, again, that was, you know, 11 years ago or so when I first got on. And that was, you know, I'd worked, I'd done stuff for theater beforehand and that kind of thing and events and and so forth. But uh, that was my introduction. Is this the dream or is this like an accommodation of the dream? Like as a visual artist, were you like, I want to be... Gustav Moreau or Pablo Picasso or whatever, you know, are you like, were you wanting to go towards a certain trajectory of fine arts and then kind of accommodated to a more commercial sphere? Or is this become like a nice dream unto itself? No, I mean, it, it's it's a new skill set. I mean, I, I think for me, the scenic, doing the scenic was sort of my route into the entertainment world, at least with regards to TV and movies. And having now been on it, I, I feel it's a, you know, it's another art form and it's an art form I do want to explore. 
And so I actually took up, uh, after working on sets for a while, you know, after you, you, it's, you know, at some point you think, well, you know, what would I do if I was doing a movie or what would I, you know, and, and it's a visual medium and I've, uh, I've done visual art most of my life and I've dabbled in music and then being exposed to the narrative is a new thing. And so I picked up screenwriting four or five years ago and wrote a bunch of screenplays. And, and then probably in the last year or two, I figured, you know, I'm going to have to make this happen. It, you know, nobody's going to dump any money on my lap. So I've been learning about cinematography and lenses and production. And, you know, I've been, I've been exposed to it, but more closer to the camera. So, and so I don't know, for me, I'm just a constant student. I'm just learning about it. So I'm, I feel like I'm on a trajectory. This is, you know, I, I don't want to just do scenic stuff for the rest of my life, but it's a skill that people like or need. And, and I'm, you know, it's fun. I get to work with some pretty cool people on cool, cool projects. So can't complain. After you kind of were thrust into the art department, did you ever like think about other parts of the department that you might want to work in? Like does like production designing or like, you know, set dressing or that stuff appeal to you? Or is it more like you just love the art of dressing the actual like sets himself and doing the painting and, and that's it. Or, or did, or did your brain never get like extracted to the other part of like building the whole visual look of the of the movie or show. well I, I think that's where i'm at right now is that i'd like to work on things that i own mm. and i like creating stuff i just like and yeah and that's why i'm writing and i think i think right now i i, I my role would be best I mean, with regards to my own projects, definitely a, on a producer role because I do know the mechanics of of shoots. I know about you know scheduling and locations and lighting. I know the practicalities of a set and what goes into it. So when I say producer, I don't mean that someone that just lords over the thing, but more as someone that goes around every department and goes, "Are you okay? Are you okay? Do you have everything? Do you do you have everything?" <laughs> so yeah, I I've written a bunch of stuff and I'm one of I'm you know, moving it forward, you know, incrementally. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, um, I've got a few other things that are not related to the movie business that I'm, I'm working on as well. Just other side interests, but yeah, just onward and upward. Is there something that you get asked to do all the time that someone who doesn't interact with scenic artists might not know about? Like, do you get asked, do you get emailed like once a week to create like a blue sky background or like a window with green trim? I mean, like, is there something that's so common that you almost like, it's almost like negligible to you, but would be very weird to hear for other people? I probably, I would say, I mean, this, the beginning of this year has been pretty slow and last year was kind of slow. Well, it picked up a little bit towards the end of the year, but a lot of what I get asked to do is variations of concrete walls. <laughs> See, that's, that's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, just, uh, yeah, con sometimes there's brick, but concrete, people love their concrete. So, yeah, I do a lot of concrete. So, I could pretty much do that on autopilot now. I mean, it's, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. What type of movie is that for? Oh, a, a lot of it's for commercials. I mean, we did oh. a pilot earlier last year called Rust Belt News. And I wasn't the key scenic. I was one of the you know assistants on it. But uh, that was a we had to build a giant set, and basically it was a two story set, and it all had like fake concrete and fake you know this it had to look like an old printing press room or something like that. So definitely did a lot then. But yeah, for a lot of commercials, people like the concrete for photo shoots. You know, they want a concrete back wall. They want that kind of or you know rough urban aesthetic or something. So uh, yeah. So I do do a lot of that. Yeah. So here, let's let's take it. This is a great thing to kind of go into detail on. So like like talk about how you construct a concrete, a fake concrete wall. 
like what's the process like just plywood with like the right paint on it like is there a certain material that you have to put down and then same question for brick once you're done with the concrete i'd love to hear both processes yeah well generally what happens is i'm brought on by you know somebody and they say hey we need a concrete wall that needs to be done and so at some point along the way, I'm given reference material. So the reference material is really going to dictate what goes into it. So I meet a lot of times maybe with the art director or whoever it is, whoever the point person is, and we just go over. And, and I, I think one thing to remember is whenever you're working from reference material, make sure you're looking at the same reference material, because if somebody's looking at their computer screen and you're looking at a printout, you may have totally different color, <laughs> color action going on, you know, so uh, just making sure that you're on the same page, you know, color wise and everything. And then generally what will happen is I'll, you know, time permitting, I'll do a few samples. So I'll get some sample paints together, just kind of mix some general colors and I'll do maybe three samples run them by the art director, you know, and then I, you know, indicate, you know, which sample do you like and which part of which sample do you like and so forth. And then after that, it's just, uh, you go ahead and, and build it. So generally, you know, we start off with some four by eight flats, you know, then we'll paint them, just paint them flat. If we're not really doing any texture, if it's just more of the color of concrete, you know, we'll base, you know, we'll find out, like if somebody gives me a, a concrete sample, the first thing I do is sort of squint at it and I find out what's sort of the overall undertone color of it. And that's going to be about 60% of your paint. And then you do, you get that color, do it on, and then you do a slightly darker version, depending on if it's a cool concrete, it could be warm. Some concrete has mildew on it. Some concrete is polished. It really depends. And that a lot of that is just figured out in the sample phase, because then you're able to kind of figure out, okay. But yeah, concrete is just basically 60% of the base color, maybe 20% of an accent color, and then, you know, just a, a, a real dark and then a real light and then maybe some white spatter. So generally, you could with about five colors, you can make almost any kind of style of concrete you want, you know, with sponges and spray bottles and that kind of thing. So and just to be clear, so that's like on wood. So any texture that you're seeing is is really just an illusion. It's not actually textured of an Yeah, well, if they do want texture and they're going to have raking light on it and they really want that, then you're going to do something like you'll you'll get the flats and then maybe you'll do some joint compound and you just you just got to kind of, you know, joint compound is you can work with There's stuff at Home Depot for grout mix. It really Mm. it's it's hard to just say a hard and fast rule because with those different materials, you're you know, are the walls going to be transported? Are they going to be on set? How heavy are they going to be? If you're going to use grout and all of this kind of stuff, that could be a problem if they're, you know, yeah. So the texture part that would be, you know, figured out at the sample point, you know, or do they need a texture or does it, is it okay to, for it to just be flat? It's going to be in the background and so forth. So it's just very important to do samples first of anything that you want to do and, and get those right. Because once you start, once you're committed and you've got all this stuff, it, it can be, it can go south real quick. What assumptions do you hate about your job? Like, is there ever, is there a constant request from you and your department that isn't you and your department? Like, I know that I mean, you send us this bio about, you know, you do props, you do, you do all of these things. You've done all these things in the past, but there's also like jurisdiction on a studio feature or a commercial shoot. So are you feeling like a blending of boundaries and and what would be an irritation for you to be asked to do something that isn't necessarily your job? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for most productions that I've worked on, and that's sort of one of the things I like about movie productions and TV productions is that there is kind of a hierarchy and you kind of know where your place is. So 
generally, you know, I'm, if, if I'm not the key scenic, I'm just brought on as a scenic to work for the key scenic. I, you know, work with that person and, or the uh, art director, production designer. Really it's, it's, it's just a matter of asking every possible question up front because it's really hard that to assume anything. Cause once you assume something and all of a sudden you're building it and you're painting it, and the production designer comes in and goes, that's not what I drew <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, or yeah. that's not what I want. So I, I don't really, there's not really anything that I, you know, don't like. I mean, if it's, if it's out of my department, I just say, Hey, that's out of my department. Or if they ask me to do something that I don't really don't do, I say, that's great, but you need to talk to my boss, you know, and make sure it's okay with them. So as long as you keep the, 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 the channels of communication very clear and open, I don't mind anybody asking me for anything and I'll do whatever project is asked for me to do, but I just make sure that the people around me, the people above me know that I am doing that and that I'm not going rogue or off into a rabbit hole somewhere. So, yeah. Now I want to hear about brick walls. Oh, so yeah. I, sorry. I worked on the movie <laughs> where they made a big brick wall. They made it specifically so it could be destroyed. And these guys made individual foam bricks one by one and then basically bricked them together like you would a regular brick sure. wall with plaster. Sure. Is yeah. that how it's done or is there a faster, better well, way to make a brick wall? I mean, there are there are pre-mold, pre-made bricks that you can buy pretty cheap. And, you know, a lot of times they don't, they don't even have any color on them. They just have a brick texture and then you paint them. You know, you paint the grout color first and then generally you'll do the brick color on top with a roller. So the roller just hits the top and it preserves the grout underneath. If you want to hand make them, which we I've done a lot of, which is also good for just rock walls is if you use that blue and pink insulation foam and you use some acetone. Now, of course, you're going to have use a mask and be careful and all this kind of stuff, but the acetone will eat into the the foam board or the foam insulation and you can get some really crazy rock effects, brick effects, that kind of thing. Again, a lot of it's experimental, but that's something that we do if we're making bricks from scratch, so to speak. But yeah, if you're buying pre-made bricks, I think they call them Z bricks, you know, the ones you can buy. Like, I, in fact, I was just at Home Depot the other day and they've got sheets of bricks that they have and so forth. So that's, you know, that's the easiest way to do them. But it's always nice to, if you can do some sort of distressing to them, just to give them a little bit more of a realistic look. And they don't look so like they came from Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand that you're writing and you're interested in producing, but what if you could design a dream job that has to do with being a scenic artist, like a dream gig, someone saying, Sean, I really need you tomorrow to do this. What Jeez. would what would be bringing you joy? What would be the most fun? Well, I do like I, I like murals just in general. I don't get called on to do that. I mean, I have done some a few be- small murals for commercials. So, you know, they'll say, oh, we need a little landscape or we need to do something. So those are those are fun. I like sign painting. I like uh, old style of signs and so forth. So sign painting, I've always really enjoyed just the lettering. I like the fonts. I like making a sign and then distressing it, making it look like it's 50 years old and everything. So uh, that's fun. I think I would like to explore more the production design route. I think that I do have my skill sets for that. And I, I'd like to maybe have a little bit more of a 30,000 foot view of maybe the look of a production. I think that would be fun. Yeah. I, I, and I like, I like working with other artists as well. I like working with younger ones and, and showing them the ropes. And yeah, I, I don't really know if I have a dream. I, I, I think it's more of a direction. That's really what it is. It's not so much a goal. It's it's more like, okay, I want to work with cool people. As long as I feel like I'm building and creating and doing stuff, you know, things will work out. 
somehow they will, you know, and at the very least at the, at the end of the day, I'll at least have a whole bunch of stuff that I made, <laughs> you know, whether or not it goes anywhere, that's, you know, for not for me to decide, but, you know, as artists, we have to remember that we make stuff that nobody asked for. So, <laughs> and that's fine, you know, but I think we just have to accept the fact that we're, you know, we put stuff out into the world and they're like, you know, kind of like kids, they grow up and then you just get onto the next thing. And whether it connects with somebody or whether it doesn't connect with somebody, that's really, it's sort of out of your control. You, you have to just go on to the next thing and the, and the next thing and the next thing. And, and so I, I don't think there's really ever, you know, I've heard interviews with very prominent people and they're, even they, they don't seem like they ever feel like they've arrived. They're, they're still like kind of the next thing, the next thing. And, and, you know, so. So one of the problems that I've always run across when I'm trying to build sets for a project, especially a low budget project, is the space. Like where the frack are we going to build all these things? Do you have any like tips or ideas of like easy and inexpensive ways to find the space for your sets? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it depends on if you, they need to be super quiet or can't be near a road or something like that. I mean, I, I think, you know, at the very least, you could maybe rent a storage unit. I mean, I, I don't know <laughs> how much battery power you, you know, but rent one for a month. I mean, there's a lot of, at least here in Portland, there's a lot of uh, workspaces here. And I would imagine if you're, let's say, if you're shooting a movie and you want to build a set somewhere, you you know, contact, you know, commercial real estate's in the, in the toilet right now. So I think, I think you probably have a lot more uh, bargaining room right now to work with something, but just rent a space for a month, you know, pay 500 bucks and you have access to a 2000 foot, you know, maybe it's an old office or maybe it's an, you know, whatever. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of vacancies here in Portland. And, you know, again, it's a little, being a little creative, but you could get your space, get a space for one month and then you, you know, you pre-production, you know, you build it, you know, for a week or whatever. I mean, it's, it sounds flippant, sounds easy, but I, I think, think you that need would two be months. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because yeah. I think, I think you have to like, you know, plan it, then you have to build it and then you have to shoot mm -hmm. in it. So like, you know, like, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, well, then, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm just curious, like how much time do you feel like is like, if you wanted to build, let's say like three or let's say three sets in, mm -hmm. in some sort of, you know, big industrial space, like mm -hmm. how much time would, would you and your team need to do that? And how many people would you need? Like, would it have to be like five people working like five days a week, you know, for two weeks to get it done? Or is that something that could be done much faster? Like tell us like what's possible with. Yeah. Things. I mean, I think the, the best thing would be like, let's say if you're going to be shooting at a, well, first, if you can just build the flats and do as much of the building off site as possible, that is, if you have a carpentry workshop somewhere and just, you know, you build everything, mm -hmm. build all the flats, get all the trim painted, get all the doors painted, get all, you know, that's, you get it all, all the pieces put together and then you get your, your, you know, your eight four by eight scene dock together. And once they're all painted, ready to go, then you get your, your low, you know, maybe your set where you want to set up. And so you've saved yourself a lot of building time offsite, and then you can rent the space for a week or two weeks or something like that. And then you take all the set pieces there. They're mostly built, set them up. You know, generally we'll go in when they, we do that a lot on productions is where they will build like an entire set of a bedroom or something, and they need to put it somewhere else. And so we get as much done of it as possible. They move it to set and then we just go in and just do little touch-ups. And so they're pretty much, once the set's there, you know, we may go in for just a real quick touch-up, but then they're just already starting with lighting and uh, electric and, and that kind of thing. So that would be my, 
do as much off the, your space as possible. But yeah. So, so if you're doing it in like a workshop where you maybe you may you do not have room to set up all the the flats together, how mm-hmm. do you plan the consistency of of a room when you're looking at one individual individual flat? Like, is it based off a of design that's built ahead of time, or is it just something that you're able to do based off an experience? Like, how is that done? Yeah, well, usually, I mean, it, when we when we're dealing with sets, and I, I I don't necessarily work as a construction coordinator, but anybody that wants a set built, they're going to bring in the plans, and then we look at them, and it's like, okay, well, this is this is sixteen feet. This is a hallway that's sixteen feet long, so we're going to have four four by eight flats on one side. We're going to have four four by eight flats on the other side. So we know that's going to be the case. Now, maybe if you're doing a hallway, you can't necessarily put the trim on the pieces because you're going to have to take those four by eights apart and take them to location and then put the trim pieces on. So again, it's, it's, it's getting everything. So I, yeah, I just start off with the drafting design. You know, it's like, okay, what, how big of a set do you want? Do you want a 12 foot by 16 foot set? Do you need, is, do you need three walls? Do you only need two walls? You know, depending on where your camera's shooting, maybe you can get away with one wall. So that's, that's just, you know, the big point points of it is just how many four by eight flats you're going to need. And then what, what goes on it and what's your reference? You know, again, it goes back to like the concrete thing where what type of bedroom do you want? What type of kitchen do you want? You know, what kind of cabinets do you want? Is it a 1950s kitchen or is it and that kind of thing? And, and, you know, that needs to be, you know, established, but yeah, I mean, again, it may sound really flippant for me to do it just because I've been around it so much and it sounds, you know, easier said than done, but I don't know. I, I just think it can be done. Just... As a writer, are you limited or are you empowered because of your background in, in set construction and scenic design, all these things? Like, are you writing, you know, ambitious sci-fi movies because you're like, I know how to build that? Or are you also like the rest of us? thinking as cheaply as possible when you write and trying and unfortunately limiting ourselves aesthetically because of budgets and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, they always, there's that term of writing for budget and I, all my screenplays, you know, the feature length specs I've done, I've, I've always written them for budget. I think just in the back of my head, you know, nothing I've written, I can imagine costing more than three or $4 million, which, you know, it's a lot of money, you know, but maybe, but that would be a union crew. So, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because I just recently this year, I submitted a short to a contest for a grant and you win the money, you get the grant to shoot your short. And I didn't win, but the the rules were that the short had to be 10 pages or less and you had to be able to shoot it in two days or less and couldn't have more than five or six speaking parts or something like that. So I had originally started this short last year. And then when I saw the contest, I started being a brutal editor because I cut it down from like 20 pages to 10. But working within limits is good in, in a lot of ways. I found it to be, it actually made me a better writer. I think it made the story a lot better. And, and now I have a 10 page script that can be shot in two days that I've pretty much budgeted out. You know, it's pretty much a turnkey operation now. So it was, even though I didn't win, it was a good exercise. So I don't know. I I think limits are, are, that's a lot of times where the creativity happens because otherwise you get paralyzed by options. Well, I think that's fantastic big picture advice, but I also think you're in a very privileged position where you could make a micro budget film look damn good. I think if, if you thought in those terms too, right. Is that ever a notion for you? Or are you really? And I think it's wonderful that you want to work with unions. We're pro union over here, and mm-hmm. making movies is hard. <laughs> 
but just the idea of like having access to those funds is always very crippling, right? So it's, is that a plan B or C for you to adjust things for a micro budget? Or is it to just get the resources that the film requires? Well, I think for my position, I'm not really a person that really wants to direct. I have much respect for what directors do. I've worked around some very professional, high-level directors. It's a very intense job. And I think my skill set would be better maybe along the, maybe a showrunner type thing, or maybe, again, at more of the producer level, because... Well, this question is for you as a producer, by the way. Just, I mean, this is good yeah, information. Yeah, Please continue yeah, answering however yeah. you want to. But Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I really, if I do anything, I really want to be able to pay somebody something. And I think that's really... The, and I think even though I've written a bunch of stuff, I'm, I'm not really actively funding anything right now because it's just you know, that's, that's in its own, you know, can of worms, so to speak. And I think my skill is just write, create, use whatever my skill sets are. I really don't want to do everything on set. I would love to just be able to find a director and say, Hey, I've got these screenplays. If you'd like to make one of them, please. And, you know, go get, find a DP and find it, you know, cause I, I'm not qualified to be a director. I've never directed actors before in my life. I've, I'm not a cinematographer. I'm, I'm not a set dresser. I think the only thing I qualify for is, you know, scenic painting, probably carpentry. I can do that. And I think production design, like I said, I, I think I haven't worked on that capacity officially, but that would be good. But, you know, movies are so collaborative and I, I don't really see myself in the position of I'm going to do everything, every job on this movie. I just I don't have the talent for that. And I, I'd rather just bring other people in and. You know, when that happens, I don't really know. But as long as I just keep writing, keep creating, just getting a body of work together, that's kind of the way I'm approaching it. You know, it's it's interesting because I've heard this or we've heard this a few times on the show where like people are like, oh, I'm not qualified to direct. Oh, I shouldn't direct. And it's like there is no there is no qualified to direct. Like you, you just do it, you know, and yeah. there's no there's no school. There's no skill or special ability that you're born with. It's It's literally like. I always feel like in in a lot of ways, the person who's most qualified to direct a project is the person who wrote it, you know, in a lot of cases, because they're the ones that is the qualification because you know the story deeper than anyone else, you know? So I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't put that limit on yourself. Like, you know, at the start of your journey as a filmmaker, because, you know, maybe you are one hell of a director and you just don't know it yet, you know, and, and maybe that is something that you are capable of doing, you know, and you won't know until you try and when you try, then you'll then you'll find out, you know, but like, yeah, I feel like, you know, I feel like directing is the one thing that like you it's like the will of you qualifies you to be the director. Sure. It's like however much will and like passion and, you know, like drive that you have is is what is going to allow you to to fill that role properly. And all the other stuff is like where the collaboration comes in, like the producing, the technical side, the cinematography, like all the things that you need to have, like, you know, actual like skills and background in not to say that directing isn't an actual skill or anything. I'm just saying it's like the technical stuff that could be filled in, you know? Yeah. 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 So yeah, I feel like, 
it'd be really interesting to see like where you end up in five years from now. Like if you end up directing your own projects or producing them or whatever, or how you, how you move forward. But yeah, I feel like, yeah, I guess I thought I had a question there, but then I think I always mostly had a statement. (laughs) No, I mean, I think, I mean, directing is something I would do if there was nobody else to do it, but there are just so many people that are talented and that probably would like to do it. And I was thinking the other day that one thing that's perhaps a little hesitant for me about being a director is I'm a little bit intimidated by actors because, I mean, when you're a director, you are right up there close and actors, the way that they're able to transform themselves is it's kind of freaky in a way, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I mean that in a good way. It's, it's sort of magical in the way that they transform and, and to be so close to that intense emotional atmosphere at times. And then also to be able to look over and go, oh, did we get that? <laughs> and it, it seems being able to split personality, the did we get the shot with is that person bringing something forward that is that is it. It's a skill. I mean, it's a skill. The closer you... I remember when I first worked on a set, the thing they told me is like, the, the closer you get to the camera, the more intense it gets, <laughs> just on all levels. And so... Uh, uh, so again, I have much respect for what they do. I think my, I, I, all the stuff that I've written, I've done a lot of storyboarding for, I've done shot lists, I've done you know, very production. I do have a very much a visual sensibility, but I also believe that a screenplay represents 3% of the budget of most movies. So 97% of a movie is not the screenplay. It's the actors, it's the lighting, it's the cinematography, it's the editing, it's the sound design. And I'm more than happy to just take whatever screenplay I have. And if there's a director that's interested in it, I'd love to hand it off to them and be available if they want feedback. If they don't want feedback, that's fine as well. You know, like I said, they're kind of like kids. You have to kind of send them off into the world and uh, (laughs) hope for the best. But yeah, I think I'd rather much work with a director in terms of giving them whatever feedback or license they want. But uh, at the end of the day, you hand it off to the director. I have much respect for their vision. And I don't really want to impose that. If, if, if the screenplay is tight enough and good enough, the vision will be there. And they'll be able to translate it, uh, in my opinion. Well, Sean, this is just what you do when you're part of this show is like, we've decided that everyone needs to be a director. <laughs> and so like, that's, you're just going okay, through the gauntlet well, of every guest who says yeah, they don't yeah. want to direct. We're like, are you sure? Let me press yeah. that button really quickly. Yeah. I think it's time for us to move to our final six questions, which are just like more. I think we talked about they're squishier. Sure. Yeah. So what's the first film project or independent story project or however you want to turn, you know, I know you did theater too. So what's the first piece of art you made for a larger audience and how do you feel about it now? Well, let's see. I was a graffiti artist in Seattle back in the eighties. So that was probably my uh, first, first, how do I feel about it now? Well, I think I was a little bit out of control in those days. No. So that's going way back. In terms of like writing, I guess my first screenplay that I wrote, which I still have and I've revised it, I definitely think the first couple drafts, I thought they were good. And then I reread them, you know, a year later and I was like, oh, that's not good. (laughs) I spend more time rewriting than writing. So yeah, I I guess two answers there. So what's the best filmmaking or art, like on set, scenic, whatever you, however you want to, could be best filmmaking, Mm -hmm. could be best art construction advice you've ever received? Mm, Well... 
I, I actually heard this on a, I think a podcast. I don't know if it was your podcast or maybe it was another one, but this person was talking about, you know, we've heard that term, which we all hate. Well, we'll fix it in post. And his attitude is no, we'll fix it in prep. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's so much when I see things go south, it's generally because they didn't prep. They didn't, they didn't allow for every possible contingency, you know, every possible doom and gloom scenario that can happen. And I'm that way. I, I will go into the ground if I, if there's a project happening and I will, I will think of every, you know, lightning strikes or earthquakes or <laughs> maybe that's an ex- exaggeration, but yeah, fix it and prep. You, you kind of answered this other question, but we'll see if there's another one. What's the worst art or filmmaking advice you've ever received? Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I think the, the, the most universal worst advice is to not being told not to do something. And if you feel that you need to do it, I remember hearing somebody say that everybody that doesn't make it in the business, and this maybe could be for film or maybe just being an artist or creative type is that don't have a plan B. Everybody that like stopped went with a plan B. Everybody that quit went with their plan B. And if you have no plan B, you know, it's the, it's that old saying where the, uh, the invaders, they sailed across the ocean. They went to the land that they were going to conquer. And the, the leader said, burn the ships because we're not going back. <laughs> I don't know. That's much of an answer. But yeah. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker or an artist? No, I'm not really into goals because I think at some point you may achieve your goal and then you realize, hey, I'm still not happy, <laughs> which is, I think, a lot of people. <laughs> so uh, it's more of a direction. It's more of a direction. It's just to onward and upward. And, you know, every day we're given forks in the road and it's hard to tell where things are going to be a year from now, or whatever, but use your instinct, use your gut, trust. Uh, yeah, just the people around you, just make sure that they are a net positive and uh, not a net negative uh, this one guy, I remember saying that his his judge for the people that he hangs out with is if you spend an hour with somebody and at the end of that hour, you feel more depressed than you were before, that's probably not somebody you want in your life. Now, if you feel the same or you feel better, that's probably somebody you do keep in your life. So that's my barometer. I've got to cut someone out. <laughs> <laughs> Had a five minute conversation that felt like two hours today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people can be yeah, exa- <laughs> exhausting. And I, I have very zero real drama in my life. And I don't like drop people that have high drama around them. I just, it's just, yeah, I'd rather be alone. <laughs> yeah. If you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? I have patience. Uh, I think there's that rush. I, I, I look back and I'm, I'm actually very glad that I never really, I'm, when in my early 20s, I thought, oh, I got to network and I got to go meet all these people. And once I meet them, and, and I was really, I did not have the skill set to even make a network worth anything. I mean, if I had met some famous person back when I was in my 20s, yeah, that would have been a great network, but I didn't have the skill set. And so I've, I'm really glad that I've just been able to kind of, it's, you know, life's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And I, I just, I, I feel like if I'm getting better at whatever skill sets I have, that's, that's good enough for me. Last question, is making mo- movies or making art hard? Yes, yes, it can be. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes doing your own art isn't necessarily as hard as doing it for other people, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, if it was easy, everybody would do it. So you did it. Awesome! Yay! So where where should people go if they want to learn more about you as an artist or see some of your work? Do you have a website? Like you on social media? Like what what should people do? 
probably just IMDb. I've got, uh, I'm uh, Sean Casey, Roman numeral 11, because there's other Sean Casey's there. <laughs> My husband is Sean Wright, no, Roman numeral X. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we're there. up there, so. But I, but I did get the imdb.me slash Sean Casey, so I got that link. But yeah, if you go to IMDb, yeah, I've got, uh, I think my website's there, my contact info's there, my website, yeah, yeah, something like that. So yeah, that's a good place. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Alric, what do you remember about talking with Sean Casey? This was a while ago, and, th- and this conversation has been a while in the making because I think Sean probably emailed us like, I don't know six months ago maybe or something like a really long time ago and it took me forever to get back to him and then we were like yeah that's in- interesting let's totally have a scenic artist on the show and then it took us a you know a little while to schedule it and then now it's been in the can for at least two months so so it's a little while since we had the conversation but i think what i remember most was that like just hearing more about this niche part of the art department and like what what exactly sean does and you know the artistry that goes into it and and like what his world looks like as a scenic artist. I just thought it was really fascinating. Mm. And I kind of wanted to hear more about matte painting, but like that wasn't something that he did. So we didn't want to talk about that. But I wanted to learn more about like, oh, yeah, because like I know that matte painting was like the deal for like ever in, in filmmaking. Mm. And then like, you know, when technology caught up, it kind of went out of style. But I know it's kind of like people are doing it again. It's like kind of coming back to a small degree. And so I kind of wanted to hear about matte painting. But anyways... That aside, uh, Liz, what did you remember from the conversation? Yeah, I remember you asking uh, the question about bricks. And I was just like, I would never even think to ask the question about bricks. <laughs> I remember, that, but I liked hearing it, but it was like so nerdy, right? I like really enjoyed that. I remember after the conversation, Sean emailed us and said, anytime you have questions about what I do, feel free to reach out, right? And I was just thinking... Thank you. Information is currency. It's a two-way street. Like, I just really appreciated that he saw he wanted to offer something in exchange for us promoting him. And those things stick out in my mind. So thanks, Sean. Yeah, that was really cool because I guess Sean is just a listener of the show. Uh, who who And that's what he does. He, he's a scenic artist. And he just thought, like, that we have no guests talking about this ever. And he thought it would be cool for us to, to, to do. And I was like, yeah, agreed. Very cool for us to have a guest like that because it's so different than what we normally do. So yeah, it was really, really fun conversation. But you know what also is super fun is the game. So every week or not every week, but like most weeks we try to play uh, a round of the game, which is a game that uh, Eric Toms, our producer, invented where he poses a indie film quandary, a challenge, a question, a scenario, something that we have to like um, figure an answer, figure out an answer to. And so these are answered, asked blind. So I'm going to ask Liz a question this week. She has not heard it ever. I actually haven't even read it yet. And she's going to do her best to come up with an answer to to this challenge that Eric has has, uh, formulated. So here uh, we go. You are in the midst of writing your next feature film when suddenly an idea pops into your brain. Within a very short period of time, you'll write a complete script and it is fantastic. 
You begin showing producers and financiers who unanimously love the script and you are ready to move forward with pre-production. I've, this is like a dream. Like, what? <laughs> like, like, I was can, just like, question mark, can, exclamation mark. Can this happen to me? However, a friend calls you and brings up the fact that your script has multiple similarities to a small indie that you both watched together years ago. You track down the film and after watching it, conclude that you were greatly influenced by the subject matter. Is not exactly the same, but the similarities are striking. Do you, I love this question, make the script as is, because although you were inspired by the other film, this is a work created solely by you. Reach out to the other filmmaker and see if you can acquire the rights to their film or bring them on as producer. That way you won't have to worry about your stories of plagiarism popping up down the road. Make changes to the script so as to distance your work from that of the other filmmaker. D other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Oh, this is a good question. Because yeah. if you were to ask me this like 10 years ago when I were less cynical and less world weary, I would be contacting the filmmaker and I would be like, let's chat. Here's my script. I saw your movie. I love it. How do we move forward? I'd be moving forward with a degree of idealism, thinking that I could work with this other filmmaker. My, I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> now I feel like the road to, what is it? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like you will be punished for any sort of good deed you ever do. Like mm. my worldview is flipped upside down. Mm. And my uh, next step would be to have a lawyer read my script and watch the movie and give their evaluation of what are the possible repercussions of moving forward with this draft of the script. And I know a pro bono law clinic. So like it wouldn't, I think that budget really often influences whether you bring in a lawyer, but I would be bringing in a lawyer at little to no cost and getting their opinion. But I would say like the answer I want to give is working with the other filmmaker and telling them how they inspired me. But I just think there's got to be some sort of blowback, some sort of way that I would be punished. And I just don't trust that choice. What would you do? Well, I guess I have a couple of questions that you may or may not know the answer to, but like, what yeah. would be the appropriate, like if, if like, you know, taking this exact situation, like your movie is similar to, but not exactly the same as an older movie, then then what is it? Is it is it based on, is that the credit they would get? Is it inspired by this movie? Like, I don't think I've ever even yeah. seen that before, you know? I mean, if the script is copywritten and you are plagiarizing, like... That that would uh, not play like what I'm saying. If it's like so similar, then I think that would be one answer. But if it in no way is a direct copy, it's just inspired by. I, I just think it's, it has to do with the content that you the amount of content that's similar, like a percentage of content. Yeah, I guess it's I guess that's the, the thing that's tough to define. Like, is it just like, you know, a similar world, like similar concept you know or yeah. is it like literally the same characters saying different words you know like it's a sort of i feel like there's definitely a difference right like if, if it is the same yeah. characters like you know one's like a laundromat detective who goes to outer space and then you make another movie that's a laundromat detective with the same name or a similar name who goes to outer space right it's like okay well you know now do you do you make it like you know like like how like what's the benefit like is there a benefit to like making it like you know within that universe and like just having it be a part of that thing and then like in that way partnering with the filmmaker 
totally makes right. sense because then you can like use their existing IP to help your IP and then it's like a team thing, you know? But if like it's your own story that's like similar but different, like a Dark City versus the Matrix type of situation, you know, like I don't know what you really want from the other filmmaker just like them to come on as a producer so they don't sue you or like... Well, but it also would be flattering. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where you could say, you influenced me, let's both benefit, right? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking, but I just don't think we live in that world. Well, what would they say, do you think, to you that would be like, what's the what's the blowback that happens from... I want money. That? I want all the money. I want all the control. You can't have my idea. I'm holding it hostage. Mm. I'll sue you. I don't know. I'm just thinking of like... I'll sue you and I'll sue your whole family. (laughs) I'm just thinking of like irrational responses. Just because I've been in a world where I've like unnecessarily been stepped out of my way to be nice to to someone and I feel like I was punished for that. Mm. So my perspective is from experience. But I don't know. I bet a lawyer would come on and be like, there's nothing they could do. Or... You have nothing to worry about. That's why I would ask a lawyer. I would get a lawyer involved from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What would I do? I think it w- it would depend on how similar it was and then and what the similarities were. Like if the similarities were like kind of happenstance where they didn't necessarily like d- directly relate to the story that I'm telling and like to the characters that I've written, then I would probably like just rewrite it a little bit to like deviate it a little bit more and then also get a mm-hmm. lawyer involved just to make sure. Especially let's say it was like primer, right? Like let's say my idea is like something that's like it's a small indie, but it's also like a famous movie, you know, like you don't want to yeah. like rip off primer because then people are going to like be like, you fucking ripped off primer. <laughs> but if it's like a movie that like no one's heard of before, that, like no one's seen, you know, I feel like maybe if you just deviate a little bit, like who cares? Like no one's going to come after you anyways, because like they didn't make a lot of money, like, and you're probably not going to make a lot of money. So like, what's the deal? You know, you might. You might. You might. You might. Yeah. I do like your idea of getting a lawyer involved. I think that's really smart. I, I feel like in film business stuff, like getting a lawyer involved is like always the right answer, you know? Yeah. Contracts and lawyers. I feel like we talk about that a lot. And that's like a really good move because it's just, it's just protecting all parties. It's protecting you. It's protecting the person that you're collaborating with or whatever. It's just a good thing to do. But yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't be as concerned about this. So like, I think if it wasn't too close and like too similar, I probably would just whatever, like go with it. Cause I, so I watched this movie. Oh God, what was it called? I can't remember. I saw it at a film festival many years ago and it is a small indie and you know, it's a cool sci-fi, like time travel-y type movie. And I was like, God, that seems so familiar. Like me and my friend, you know, were like, that's so familiar to this Twilight Zone episode. The guy, my friend actually remembered the name of it. And we looked it up and it was like, yeah, this is exactly this Twilight Zone episode for sure. And made into this indie feature. And that was not based by or inspired by, no credit given whatsoever. And they're fine. (laughs) No one's come after them. (laughs) Well, as far as you know, I mean, have I told you that Sean has a theory? Sean, Sean, my not our guest, but my person husband thing mm-hmm. that 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 Hunt for the Wilder People is the same movie as Up. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's fun. Very similar. I, I get. I can. I see what you mean. Like in a, in very different ways. In very different ways. Like very different ways. But he. That's like the thing he always brings up is like this is the same movie. I was like, well, yeah. there's no talking dog in the. I mean, like this is not the same movie. But yeah, there are more similarities that are unchecked 
then then we acknowledge I've, constantly. I think that's the thing like coming back to is like there's so many movies are being made. Like there's so many movies that are similar to each other and so many people have ideas that are close and similar. But like the execution is 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 completely yes. wildly different. So like you know, unless you're going to execute it the exact same way, which you never would, like it's it's going to be its own thing, you know. So yeah, I feel like I love this question. This was really good. It was a good question, Eric. Good job. Yeah, and I like I like your answer. I think like getting the lawyer involved is a good one. But I do think we both we, have good answers. We should live in a world where reaching out to the person isn't something that we're scared to do because you know, know. for the amount of times that you're good. And, and you get bit in the ass for it. That's small to, compared to the amount of times you're good. And like, it just is better for the universe that you're good. You know, I hope so. That's a very nice way of, I don't think I notice when I don't get bit in the ass. So exactly. I should notice that it's, a little bit more. It sticks out more when you, when you have to pay yes. for it. <laughs> yes. But what do you, what do you all think? Would you do what either Liz or I would do? Or do you have a completely different answer? Or do you just say F will make the movie? Or do you say, oh no, I've got to do a completely different thing. This is that, you know, can't do this at all. Let us know. You can send us an email, comment, question, suggestion, thought, whatever to podcast and making movies is hard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be great. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals. And of course, they have their top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Sean Casey for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all our social media. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Um, and you have my husband's name, so you already get preferential treatment. Oh, That's there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>